I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a good week. It's about to get better because we have a great show in store for you. It's covering a whole wide range of things uh, with a special focus on the idea of guilty pleasures. Um, As I was discussing with our announcer, Elena Passarello, right as we kicked things off at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Take a listen to this. I have been thinking about guilty pleasures this week because uh, one of our guests, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, uh, used to be a reality show producer, used to work on The Bachelor. And a lot of times when you ask people about their guilty pleasures, they will say, I like to watch reality TV. Like, it's a very common answer. Um, I feel like people will share a, a guilty pleasure with you that is really not that guilty of a thing. That's why they feel comfortable telling you about it. Yeah. No, that's right. I feel like you have two tiers of guilty pleasure. You have the publicly available guilty pleasure and then, I mean, maybe you have more than one tier. I don't know your life, but uh, but then there's, there's the one that's a little more sort of subterranean and the guilt I feel like is a little heavier the further down you go. Yeah. Those are the interesting ones because people are like, my guilty pleasure is Oreo double stuffs. Yeah. <laughs> Which, come on. Like, Here's a guilty pleasure that I feel comfortable sharing with the audience. I, I really like, if I'm staying in a hotel room by myself, I like to order a pizza to the hotel room from, like, Domino's, not even from a good pizza place. <laughs> like, an entire large pizza, and then I will sit in the bed <laughs> and systematically eat the entire pizza. That's your public one. That's this your... is the outward-facing guilty pleasure. Also, wow. I don't know if, you, if you've ever done this move, but what you will realize is that they don't have napkins in hotel rooms, Whoa. typically. So the only thing you can use to wipe the grease off your face is a bath towel <laughs> from the bathroom. So in bed, eating an entire large pizza by myself, wiping my face down with a bath towel, probably watching that weird channel that Mario Lopez is on. Oh, yeah. Where he's just talking about Jones Katami jewelry. That's my guilty pleasure that I am okay talking about. 
So the next time I'm in a a hotel room and I use the towel, I'm going to be like, I wonder if Luke or someone like Luke has has just de-pizzaed themselves with this towel. And, And of course, it would have been washed. You need to hit that with a black light first just to see what's up. Uh, do you have anything? I, I'm really interested in the guilty pleasures that the, the joy is in learning that other people have them as guilty pleasures. Um, and there That's are, like the opposite of schadenfreude. Yeah, it's it's like, like the joy of knowing that there's a shared experience. Yeah, it's like warmenfreude. Or, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't speak German or whatever. But, you know, the, the guilty pleasure that recently it seems a lot of people are coming out at being sort of uh, positive about is pimple popping videos. What? No. Oh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have come out about this. What? His face wipe on the, the, the towel with the pizza didn't get a ooh, and my pimple popping Don't throw me under the bus, Passarello. This is... Damn. You got to get yourself out of this one. Well, okay, so there's like Instagram channels now out the waz of these dermatologists that... It's, the, the feeling when you watch one of these, for me at least, it's just like such a deep... Like cleansing. I mean, it's like you have a long day and all you do is like write emails that make other emails happen and nothing gets accomplished and you feel just like this load of, of expectation and there's no success. And then you just go home and you just watch this, this thing, this volcano. Uh, it's so good. But wait, the, the, the most famous Instagram of this is called this woman named Dr. Pimple Popper. And I haven't 100 percent confirmed. Something it. tells me she got her medical degree from Trump University. Yeah, that's right. Because that cannot be, that can't be a real doctor. I mean, her her last name is not Pimple Popper. Oh, okay. If that's what you're, and, and she didn't. Yeah, no, but sure, her like. It's hyphened. Handle. It's Pimple Popper. That's right. Well, she's she's married. Right. I mean, she was Doctor Pimple, and then she right. married Mr. Popper, right. and then she became Doctor Pimple Popper. But apparently, she's getting her own television program. And it's going to be called, This Is Zit. <laughs> that's, that's almost enough to get me to watch the show, because yeah. that is a strong, strong title. You know who I'm sure has thoughts on all of this? Let's get Lindy West out here, everybody. Lindy West, welcome to Livewire. Lindy, do you disagree with the basic notion uh, or the basic term guilty pleasure because it kind of, it implies that we should feel guilty about the stuff we like? I do. I do feel, how did you know that I would feel that way? Just took a shot. (laughs) I do. I actually feel very strongly about it. I think that there's no point in um, uh, attaching a moral value to things that make us happy, unless it's like you're a serial killer or something. But I mean, if, it's, if your guilty pleasure is just like, I don't know, I like John Cena as an actor. <laughs> like, just like what you like. It's just such a weird like song and dance that people do to pretend like they don't like the thing that they really like and that people who don't do that song and dance, should be embarrassed. I don't know. It's just boring. Just like what you like. It's fine. Is there anything that you'd like to um, submit, not as a guilty pleasure, but just as a, um, 
a thing you like that, that sometimes maybe you've gotten grief for? God, I mean, everything is... <laughs> Like, okay, God, oh no, this is so hard. Uh, I mean, like, every food that you're not supposed to like. Um, you know what's really good is, like, those pink cookies they sell at the gas station, mm. where, like, the cookie and the frosting are, like, the same texture. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, indistinguishable, and all of it is just shortening. Mm-hmm. I, I know would... somebody whose whole thing is eating gas station tuna fish sandwiches. I didn't even know that was an option. It is, and it's this guy's Achilles heel. He will have a conversation with himself about how he's not going to eat a tuna fish sandwich from the gas station. But as he gets closer, eventually the tuna fish sandwich wins. Okay, so just to break down the idea of a guilty pleasure, uh, as long as you're not being poisoned by the tuna and the tuna tastes good to you, and you're, yeah, that's fine, but probably we all should stop eating tuna, because did you hear that fish are going extinct in 20 years? All of them? Apparently. I don't know, that's what an article I only read the headline of said. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's exactly the kind of journalistic and scientific rigor, Lindy, that's landed you a spot writing columns for the New York Times, <laughs> and also the author of the hit book, Shrill, uh, Notes from Allowed Women. Uh, your your book uh, has been so well received. Why do you have any thoughts on maybe why it resonates so much with people? I mean, when I was writing the book, I just not to get all serious on you, but I'm sure the audience is ready for us to move on from the previous <laughs> topics. Uh, I just wrote the book that I needed to read when I was like 16. 17 through 26, 27. Through current through, yeah, life. Yeah, through current day. Um, and there's just a lot of things that we sort of don't tell the truth about. You know, especially as a woman, you're supposed to be like, yes, I love this granola bar. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're supposed to be like, yes, I do think that I'm gross and I'm sorry. And I will punish myself until I become smaller and then you, I will have your approval and I can be a real person. And um, it, it's just really powerful to hear someone um, say things like, it's okay to be fat. You just stay fat if you, if you want to, it's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because people don't say that, but... Um, the thing is that most people are just going to stay fat, so you might as well not hate yourself the whole time. Like, I just, at a certain point in my 20s, I was like, I feel like it's here to stay. And if this is going to be my body for the rest of my life, why not um, figure out how to live in it and be happy instead of uh, be miserable? Uh, because, like, what's the point? So I think um, I just tried to say things that I needed to hear and that I thought perhaps other people would need to hear. And apparently they did. Apparently they did indeed, because I've uh, been to readings that you've done, and to see the way people uh, respond to you and, and the way they line up afterwards to talk to you, uh, it's clear that you have had a really big impact on the lives of a bunch of people. So Aww. really good job on that. Thank we you. have Lindy West here. She is the author of Shrill. She writes columns in the New York Times. We have to take a very short break, and then we'll be back with more LiveWire. Stay with us. LiveWire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording LiveWire. 
That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to fully.com backslash livewire. That's fully.com backslash livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well. And just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com backslash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. This week we're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. We have Elena Passarello right over there. And on stage with us is the wonderful and talented Lindy West. She's the author of Shrill. Lindy is going to be at Benaroya Hall in Seattle Sunday, April 15th. Uh, the, the um, I guess, title for your presentation is The Witches Are Coming. Yes. <laughs> um, you, you also, you write columns in the New York Times, and, and you cover a broad range of topics. Uh, movies, uh, Ricky Gervais. <laughs> how do you come up, uh, or how do you decide uh, on what you're going to write about in a given column? You know, I... It's uh, collaborative with my editor every week. Basically, Monday morning, I pull up the, the, the day's headlines. Um, and I try to look for something that's not being said. You know, there's often a story or a perspective that's, that's not making it into the mainstream. But is it like, do you have, does a thought occur to you in the shower or on a walk? Sometimes. And then you're, you're like, okay, now how do I develop that into a fully written, realized piece that's going to be, you know, going out to the whole country and really becoming immediately part of the conversation. Yeah, although you're making it sound a lot more thoughtful than it is. It's usually like I pitch something and then and I pretend like I've got a whole plan and my editor's like, great. And then there's like 24 hours of panic and dread and failure. And then in the last like two hours, I just bang it out. And it usually works. I don't know. Is there any danger of your editor hearing this and losing complete confidence in you? I don't know how popular is your show. <laughs> we get it, West. We get it. Limited chance of the editor hearing it. Um, you've written that uh, quitting Twitter has really uh, improved your life. Um, and that makes sense for you because, and we don't even need to get back into it here because it's been talked about endlessly, but you got a lot of, um, a lot of trolling on, on social media in general. So for you to quit Twitter and for it to make you feel better, that kind of makes sense. Do you think, though, uh, all of us would do better to take a step back or feel better to take a step back from social media? Probably. I don't know. I don't want to be, I'm very hesitant to be one of those older people who's like... I am too, but I just keep getting older. I know. 
I'm fighting it every step of the way. I, I just hate to be like, oh, yes, this technology is bad. Because, like, you know, it's not. There's all kinds of great things. That... But don't you think that, th- and I'll just, this old man will yell at this cloud. Um, <laughs> good job getting that, Simpsons fans. Um, also, it's a double meaning because of the cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job, cloud computing fans. But to me, I feel like people are able to interact online in a much more coarse way than they would in real life. And like, I, I erased Twitter off of my phone. I didn't quit Twitter, but I don't have the app on my phone because I used to start every day, I'm going to be honest, on the toilet, <laughs> scrolling through Twitter, watching the early kind of tornado of, of, of anger, much of it really well-placed and deserved anger, but anger nonetheless, just frothing up on my phone. It was a bad way for me to start the day, and I just, I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's making the world a better place. I don't know that it is either. I don't know how to quantify the good versus the bad. I mean, I know that there are things that Twitter could do as a company to protect its users better, um, but I also know that if you go to like a museum that has uh, anti-suffragette propaganda, I I saw this at this museum in Scotland for some reason, I, uh, and I was like, oh, that's the same stuff people say to me on Twitter. <laughs> like, you know, to a certain extent, it's a communication tool, and people are still people, and they have the same bad ideas they've always had, and this is just a really easy, it just facilitates that communication. Um, it facilitates it very well, so maybe it amplifies it, but... This is a cultural problem. It's not like these problems sprung up because of Twitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not, I don't have any wisdom here. Uh, but I, I can tell you that from personal experience, not waking up and reading Twitter every morning is great for your brain and your heart. Um, and yeah, it's very freeing to be away from it. This is sort of a weird question, but do you think there's a possibility that the president has seen or been made known of anything that you've written? Oh, I don't know. I hope so. Although I feel like if he had, I would know it because he sends people those hand-scribbled hand notes. Well, you know where he... Those are called his tweets. <laughs> no, but, like, do you know this? That, like, because uh, people give him, like, a packet of articles every day, like, what, th- what people said about him, and he'll, like, take a big pen, like a Sharpie, and, like, circle the part that he liked and be like, good job, Jeff, and then mail it to Jeff. I did not, I did not know this. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> But obviously that wouldn't happen to me because I don't write nice things about him. But I feel like I would at least have gotten tweeted at if I... That's what I'm wondering about because I feel like... I mean, I've seen him lately blocking people who have like 100 followers who just wrote a not even particularly sweet burn on him about... I know. You know, well, like, oh, Russia collusion. And then he's like, block. A long time ago, like long before he was anything close to president, I had a small fixation. I wanted to try to get him to block me or at least notice me. I used to like troll him. Just like every day, I would take one of his... It was, this was back when he was just like being mean to Rosie O'Donnell every day for a job. So he would tweet something. like He'd be like, everyone should buy my best-selling book, Art of the Deal. And I'd be like, more like Fart of the Deal. And like, <laughs> I just did that once a day. Like I just changed one of the words to fart in one of his tweets and sent it back to him. But it never, he never noticed. Lindy West, everybody, right here on Livewire. Thank you. 
All right, Lindy, here at Livewire, we like to try to get to know our guests on a, on a very deep level. Um, and so I'm holding in my hands and now placing in front of you an actual physical jar. It's got five questions inside. These are the questions that, that we think really truly strip humanity down to its most bare elements. These are the five essential questions of our time contained in this jar. We call it the jar of truth. Here's how this is going to work. You're going to pull a question out of the jar of truth, Lindy. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, is going to read it, and then you're going to have to answer it honestly. Okay. Okay. Lindy has pulled a question out of the jar of truth. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. It's being handed to announcer Elena Passarello, who is taking it back to the announcer station. So nervous. Yeah. No, this is... We've had a lot of fun so far, but now things get real, Lindy. Okay, Lindy, be honest. Which is better... You can only choose one. Sunrises or sunsets? Who likes sunrises? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's really? so early. It's late. They, you know when the sunrise happens? It literally happens at sunrise. <laughs> at the crack um, of dawn. <laughs> sunsets are incredible. That's a great time to be awake. I feel like I don't even, I haven't seen enough sunrises to know how to answer this. Like, are they different? Do they look different? Yeah. Is there something about sunrises that I don't know? Just think about, like, you've seen a sunset, right? Yeah, I think okay. so. Imagine that in reverse. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean... Uh, yeah, I just feel like nothing's going right in your life if you see the sunrise. Or everything. No, you're either up all night or, like, you have to go to Soul Cycle or something before work. <laughs> That's a thumbs down for both. You really had this Portland crowd in the palm of your hand until you criticized Soul Cycle. Sorry. Lindy West, ladies and gentlemen, taming the jar of truth. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello over there. Uh, we are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We're talking about guilty pleasures, and uh, we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose to tell us about some of their guilty pleasures. And uh, those have been passed to the front of the room. And Elena, who is actually also a college professor, but usually isn't leafing through <laughs> comment cards about guilty pleasures. No, no. Uh, Elena has accumulated these, and you're going to share some of them with us. What's, uh, what's jumping out at you? Uh, here's one from Timmy, who says, I pay to go to yoga class and then lie on my mat and sleep the whole time. <laughs> That's called restorative yoga. Yeah. And I do that sometimes, too. Um, you know that I've actually done goat yoga uh, you know, that's an Oregon product. Uh, yes, it is. Invented in Albany, Oregon. My neck of the woods-ish. Yeah. I went down to Albany. I went to the barn where it all started and did yoga and had goats crawling all over me. Did they poop on you? Oh, it, 
constantly. See, this is the thing they don't say when they have all these cutesy videos about goat yoga is that those goats are going to poop on you while you're laying on the floor pretending. They have a term. They call it blessings. <laughs> True story. Uh, here's one from Zulima. Zulima goes to the library almost every day to photocopy the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> You know, this is another guilty pleasure that I have. If I'm flying the same airline on a connecting flight, so I have a flight to Denver and then a flight to my destination, I'll do the crossword puzzle as best I can on the first flight and then look up all the answers. And then when I get on the next flight, I'll blow through it really, really oh, fast yeah. so that the person sitting next to me thinks I'm a genius. <laughs> I did that. I was on a Delta flight. I flew to Europe, and there was a trivia game where you could play against other people on the plane. Oh, yeah. But by the time I got to, I think it was Paris, I had learned every question. So on the flight back, I dominated. I played it for 12 hours, and everybody else was just like, who let Stephen Hawking on this flight? R.I.P. Yeah. All right, one more quick one. Um, this one uh, from Sam. Watching my cats chase the laser pointer up and down the steps until they're winded. Why, why is that? Oh. <laughs> well, that's a guilty pleasure because uh, we got a laser pointer for our cat, and I was going nuts with it, not unlike uh, this person who passed that card up. Sam. Sam. And my wife told me that if you don't eventually give the cat a treat at the end of the laser, they will never be okay again. Like, if they have, you know, if they don't yeah. have the satisfaction of getting something, if it's just laser and then no laser, they'll, they'll have laser PTSD. That explains a lot about my cats and why they are the way they are. I, I just, like, take the laser and I roll it under the refrigerator, like, oh, it escaped, so that, so that they'll feel like, oh, maybe We tell time. our cat that the laser went to live on a farm upstate where it can run free. <laughs> so far, she's buying it. <laughs> All right, our next guest is a comedian and writer who has appeared at Bridgetown, Sketchfest, and the Brooklyn Comedy Festival. He's also appeared on Portlandia. I'd say my favorite fact about him, though, is that he is the co-author of a very real, and I know it's real because I've read it and it's amazing, a very real young adult novel called Unwrap My Heart about a girl who falls in love with a sexy mummy. Please welcome the hilarious Alex Falcone to Livewire. Thank you, guys. I'll tell you a little about myself. Uh, I have a little girl at home. Actually, that's kind of a weird way to phrase that, I guess. My, my wife is short. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I have a petite adult woman at home, and uh, it's awesome. It's great. I have a bunch of cookies on top of the fridge. She has no idea. My wife is rad, though. She's really great. My favorite thing about her, she's a great sense of humor. She's super funny. Uh, not like this. This is my thing. Um, She's like funny for a muggle, and like my, she has this, my favorite thing she does is we have this shared Google calendar, and she plays this game where she'll invite me to like fake weird Google events. Uh, like recently she invited me to an event called Birthday Dinner, and it was in the middle of the afternoon, neither of our birthdays, and I was like, okay, I get it, I'll play along. So I invited her to two events after that, called Birthday Sex and Cuddling. But then she RSVP'd yes to the cuddling and maybe to the sex. <laughs> so then I had to invite some more people from the office and couldn't let her win, you know. 
My second favorite thing about her uh, is that she is not a jealous person. She doesn't get jealous at all, uh, which is amazing. Uh, but I recently found out it's not because necessarily like she trusts me. It's mostly because she uh, doesn't think anyone else would ever want to sleep with me. And <laughs> But it's great. It's really great because I, I work as a comic. I travel. This is the kind of job where people do get jealous. It can be an issue, you know. Uh, I was talking to these comics backstage the other day, and one of them was telling me, he was like, I can't take photos with fans anymore because, like, my wife would stay home. She'd see all these photos of, like, me with smiling women with their arms around me on Instagram, and then she would get jealous. And then another comic was like, oh, yeah, I had to turn on a TV show recently because there was, like, a, a kissing scene, and it would have made her jealous. And then they looked at me for a jealousy story. And I was like, uh, I guess one time after the show in Milwaukee, a lady asked me if I wanted to make out with her in the alley behind the club, and I said, no, thank you, because I'm married and also germs. And uh, I told my wife that story because I thought it was hilarious, and she said, that didn't happen. <laughs> it's my best jealousy story. <laughs> she was so confident, too, I was like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't make sense now that I say it out loud. <laughs> Tell you guys one more thing. I uh, I had to. I, I, I'm not a rich person. Uh, it seems fun, but um, I haven't tried it yet. Uh, so I had to do my uh, favorite poor person activity recently, which is selling clothes to Buffalo Exchange. Have any of you guys? <laughs> you guys done this? Are they jerks to everybody, or am I special? Everybody? Okay, good. Yeah, I feel like you can turn down the attitude, Buffalo Exchange. I am aware. These are bad clothes. <laughs> You're not surprising me. This is why I put them in a garbage bag <laughs> and dragged them downtown to your trash boutique. That's what they are. Like, look around your store. Everything here is somebody's worst clothes. That's the bit. No one goes to their closet, picks out their favorite outfit, and is like, ooh, I love this. I wonder what the fashion raccoons will give me for this one. <laughs> so maybe just give me a dollar and let me go home, Allegra. All right, my name is Alex Falcone. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Alex Falcone. His new book is Unwrap My Heart. This March, Livewire hosted our annual Fancy Pants fundraiser event to support our show because, of course, Livewire is a nonprofit organization something we are very proud of, but something that requires us to host fundraisers. Uh, so today we wanted to give a special thanks to you, the sponsors who helped make our 2018 benefit show possible. A huge thanks to Tonkin Torp, 71 and Change, PRI, Fully, Lagunitas Brewing, Counterpoint Press, Boeing, Blossom Brothers, Crowley Wines, New Deal Distillery, and East Side Company. Did you know Fancy Pants raised a record-breaking $31,000? And we could not have done it without the support of those fine, fine folks. So thank you, everyone, for helping out. And we just can't wait to see you next year. It's Livewire Radio from PRI. Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Of course, we do the show each week from Portland. And Portland is a fascinating place. It's full of fascinating people. So it just seems to make sense that we meet some of those fascinating people now and then. So let's do that right now. Let's meet a new fascinating friend, Stephen Green, everybody. (laughs) 
Uh, Stephen, you, uh, each year you put something called Pitch Black on. Uh, what is Pitch Black all about? So Pitch Black's an event that started here in Portland um, to put the spotlight on black entrepreneurs. Uh, Portland's home to more than 4,000 black entrepreneurs that generate more than $500 million in revenues every year. And so since we started uh, three years ago, we've had 27 people pitch. Uh, we've raised more than $50,000 for those businesses. And those businesses have gone on to raise more than $16 million for their companies here in Portland. Um, I think that uh, you know, capitalism, for all of its faults, is supposed to just kind of work in the way that if you have a good idea, the marketplace will recognize that and you'll make a bunch of money. But it sounds like you're saying that's not always how it works. There are real barriers to, to that, particularly for people of color. What are, like, what are the barriers? What are the things that Pitch Black is trying to help with? So really uh, attack uh, implicit bias. So I think a lot of people assume um, black people don't exist in Portland. I think there's me and him. <laughs> Blink twice if you need help. You all right? <laughs> um, so... The event is really around bringing community together. So you've got dominant culture, startup ecosystem. I'm a recovering banker and VC. And we get them together with uh, amazing uh, entrepreneurs here in town. And magical things happen. Okay, but that, so that's the, practically speaking, what you're doing. You're putting the right people in touch with the right people. But let's say um, uh, you or the other African-American in Portland <laughs> want to start a business. How is it different potentially for a person of color than, say, uh, a white guy? So we are twice as likely to be declined for a bank loan. Uh, in the past six years, the number of black entrepreneurs in Portland has doubled. The amount of capital going to those black entrepreneurs has actually decreased 91%. Wow. So, um, Is there a particular uh, business that, that you were able to help get started uh, through Pitch Black that comes to mind as far as Something that you're just really proud to, to see out there and it wouldn't have happened otherwise? Yeah, yeah. So the first year we did Pitch Black, uh, it was won by a gentleman named Tyrone Poole. And when I met Tyrone, uh, he was homeless 10 years ago, living in a shelter. He started his first business inside of a, a homeless shelter taking care of kids. And uh, Pitch Black, his idea was a technology product that helps people facing barriers to homelessness find homes. And so since he won three years ago, he's raised more than $3 million for his company. Uh, he's, been, uh, he's been awarded the top uh, technology startup in the state of Oregon by Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. Um, and he's spreading to other cities across the country. So really, really uh, amazing, amazing story. Is the way that things are currently and still imbalanced with a lot of institutional racism and things like that, do you realistically see a day in your lifetime, Stephen Green, when, when, when those inequities might actually be balanced out? Or is this something that's going to take hundreds of years to undo because it took hundreds of years to make? Boom. I think you answered your own question. I, I don't think it's about balancing it out. I don't think there's ever enough. I think there's realizing the greatness that is currently existing in our communities right now and shifting from something of kicking the can down the road to youth and things in the future and saying, hey, we've got Tyrone Poole right now in our city. How can we help him? Uh, I am the father of three kids, and I always say that, you know, your kids can't be what they don't see. And so one of the big things that motivates me in helping entrepreneurs is making sure my kids see people that look like them doing whatever they want to do. 
But I, I will say those same kids, when I told them I was doing this tonight, said, why are you doing that? You're not funny, so. <laughs> My daughter asked me that question every week, so it's a common thing. Steven, I was wondering, if you're talking about entrepreneurs that uh, come from lots of different places, people who are experiencing homelessness and maybe people who just need to learn skills for pitching. Is there a single quality for, that seems to be present in all successful or driven entrepreneurs? I, I know I don't have it, whatever it is, but, <laughs> but what, uh, what, what, is the, what is the unifying characteristic? Um, people that are willing to handle and, and able to manage uh, adversity. I think people that just have a stick to itiveness to it. Uh, I often say being an entrepreneur means you're smart enough to know something's a good idea, but dumb enough not to say no. And that's the magic <laughs> line that you ride. Because if you know too much, you're like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Um, as you've already identified, Stephen, uh, this is public radio, and public radio is so white. Uh, so for the people listening out there in their um, Priuses and Subaru Outbacks, <laughs> who do happen to be white people, What's something that one of those folks can do to try to be an ally? Go support a black business right now in your city. There's thousands of them. Uh. Simple as that. Stephen Green, everybody, right here on Livewire. Our new fascinating friend. Our next guest, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, has made a specialty of speaking truth to reality, or reality TV anyway. As the co-creator of the series Unreal on Lifetime, Shapiro translated her three seasons working as a producer on The Bachelor into television gold. Please welcome Sarah Shapiro to Livewire. Sarah, welcome to Livewire. It's very fun to be in Portland. In between uh, getting started in television and now becoming a force in television production, you had a pit stop here in Portland, I understand it. I did. It was kind of a long one. Yeah. Um, I lived here in 1999, and I didn't want to leave, um, but my dad told me he was going to duct tape me to a plane and send me back to finish college, so I had to go back. Um, I was a waitress at the Pied Cow. That was my first time <laughs> Um, and then I just like always hankered to come back and I had kind of a nervous breakdown after working on The um, Bachelor. And so I got in my car and drove back to Portland. So that was how I ended up back here. <laughs> how did you start uh, working in reality television back in the day? Um, very much by accident. I moved out to LA to be like a folk singer and I needed a day job and somebody, um, somebody said, oh, you should talk to this guy who knows this guy. I like literally needed to pay my rent and uh, went in for an interview. Got hired on a show called High School Reunion which was like a very innocuous, like a bunch of high school people go to like Hawaii and hang out and get drunk and somebody brought a knife. That was a very temporary job for me, but I had only had like my pied cow waitressing job and coffee shop jobs. And so when I was hired on um, high school reunion, um, they handed me a manila envelope and I just signed everything in it because it's like your double, you know, like you want to get your paycheck. Um, and when I was in Hawaii, um, managing this guy with a knife. Um, this woman approached me, and she was sort of this like very elegant woman, and she approached me, and she was like, I heard good things about you, kid. I was like, thank you very much. And, um, and she was like, I want you on my show. And I said, what's your show? And she was like, The Bachelor. 
Um, and it had been, only been out for one season. I literally thought it was the Antichrist. Like, I was like, <laughs> I'd been like a feminist since I was five. I went to Sarah Lawrence and I was like, oh, God, no. And it was like one of the first times in my life I didn't skip a beat. And I actually said, like, oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. Like, you do not want me. <laughs> um, I'm a dying the wool feminist. And she just said, check your contract. <laughs> and um, then I did check my contract. And it turned out that I had actually signed. Um, a exclusive contract to the production company in perpetuity throughout the known universe. <laughs> I thought Faustian bargains were like no. the stuff of legend. Yeah, no. Um, and so uh, I was uh, non-consensually rolled onto The Bachelor. That was what happened. So then I became a producer, a creative producer. My job was to manipulate women. For people that watch that show, mm-hmm. and as a person who... who you know, whether willingly or not, helped make that show. What is it that people who watch those kinds of reality dating shows, particularly like The Bachelor, Bachelorette, what is it that they don't understand about how the shows get created? I mean, I think like people are like, yeah, it's a little bit staged, but what you don't understand is that these are people that aren't actors and you have to manipulate them into doing things you need them to do and you are not permitted to actually give them a piece of paper with their lines on it. So it's like a way of provoking people into saying things that you can edit into a narrative that works for your story. Wait, so you as a, as a producer yeah. are actually out there generating responses from them yes. that can become, I guess my thought was, it's the bachelor or bachelorette yeah. talking to the people who are interested in them, and that is where the content comes from exclusively. The producers are also, uh, as on your show, I mean, I guess I didn't know if that was really how it worked, or that was just on, your, on Unreal, your scripted show, which we're going to yeah. talk about in a minute. You're saying that's really part of how this stuff gets developed. Well, it really is like a crazy syntax game, and if you're like really bored and miserable and trapped in a contract, you can sort of get obsessed with your <laughs> syntax game. But I mean, it's just like saying stupid things to people that makes them say horrible things back to you, and then you take those out of context and put them all together and it makes a great show. That is also how Livewire is created, for the record. (laughs) We have Sarah Shapiro here, co-creator of Unreal on Lifetime, which is in its third season. It is a a scripted show about a a program like The Bachelor and the people who work on it and the people who are contestants on it. Uh, You worked on The Bachelor back in the day. Uh, I noticed that in the third season, the um, two protagonists are... Uh, a producer played by Sheree Appleby, who's, I, I assume, kind of embodying, to some degree, your experience. And then her boss, the, the dragon lady, who, who approached you in Hawaii and said, you work for me. Um, but then the, the sutress is, is a sort of the, described as the female Elon Musk. It's kind of like a question of what if the robots became sentient? Like, what if the bachelorette was super smart and actually almost better at playing the game yeah. than the people trying to manage her? Yeah, so that was like from the very beginning of the creation of the series. The series is based on a short film that I wrote and directed, which is sort of about the worst night of my tenure on The Bachelor. So it was the night that I decided I had to quit. But the whole sort of premise of the show is that producers often excuse their behavior by saying they knew what they were signing up for. And what I really found to be true is that it's a totally unbeatable chess game and nobody can win. That when you have that many people, uh, really smart people working against you and people editing you out of context, there really, is, there really is no way to win. And so what we're sort of doing this season is showing what happens when a very smart person comes into that game and tries to take it on head on, like tries to beat the game. Has that always been the plan for the show to have this season three where the one person who could kind of beat the, the system you've been you've been hoping for that or, or planning for that since you pitched it yeah definitely like so one of the things when I pitched and sold the show was that um it was sort of candy for executives because they were like oh my god it reinvents itself every season so we can recast that central person every season and that was definitely one of the steps we wanted to take and we wanted it to be a woman 
Uh, in, in season three, the uh, Rachel, who's the producer, the Shri Appleby's character, she starts off sort of taking a, a vow of honesty. I mean, it was interesting to, to watch her navigate the world of BS that is television yeah. uh, by, by trying to sort of be radically honest. And you are, even though you're making fun of it, you're still existing in the world of BS that is television, right? Is lying an essential part of what you do as a co-creator of a, of a hit TV show? Um, I have to say, I actually, like, in, in all earnest, I swore off the dark arts. I really did. Like, it made me so sick that I, I really, really make an effort to not do that. I definitely think in Hollywood there are a ton of politics to navigate, but I make a huge effort to do that without actually lying. Do you ever watch The Bachelor or Bachelorette or any of these shows? No. <laughs> Don't you need to to stay up on the trends? Because you're also writing a show that's about this kind of stuff. I tried, and it was like Clockwork Orange. Like I was like, "Come on, watch it." I can't. I can't look at it. It's totally traumatizing. The memories of having done the job, and also just the feeling of the way it's edited. Like every part of it is completely impossible for me to watch. I really can't look at it. What do you hope people take away from your show, Unreal? I actually think the most important part for me is that it's a show about women who talk about work and they don't, that's like the central thing in their life is their job. So it's, to me, the most important part of the show is actually that it's a workplace drama about two women who really care about their jobs. Um, and I think like the pulling back the curtain on reality TV is sort of the surface part of the show. Um, and I guess the only, my only hope with that is, you know, starting to talk about reality TV is like a primary force in our culture. It gave us our president and it's like not actually a joke anymore. Like it, like, it is the engine that is driving where we are headed. And so I think taking it incredibly seriously and, and really considering what you consume and what you support because every time you, like, joke tweet about that stuff, it's feeding the monster. And I, um, I think it's, like, absolute violence against women, that show. Sarah Shapiro, everybody. The show is unreal. Uh, we need to take a very quick break. You're listening to Livewire, and we will be right back. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Heather Harlow of Portland, Oregon, and Catherine Crawford, also of Portland, Oregon. Heather and Catherine are part of the Livewire member community. What does that mean? That means they generously support Livewire with a donation each month, and we are so thankful for that support. I am not being mm, hyperbolic, that's the word, when I say this is one of the things that actually allows us to keep doing the show. So a huge thanks to Heather and Catherine. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Luke Burbank here along with Elena Passarello and our guest right now, Sarah Shapiro, co-creator of the Lifetime show Unreal. All right, Sarah, continuing to learn new things is a, uh, it's a big thing here on Livewire because, of course, this is public radio, and learning new things is basically all we have after being be beaten and bullied by jock radio stations. <laughs> so <laughs> learning about stuff is kind of our jam. To that end, we've created a non-accredited, audio-only institute of higher education here on the show. We call it Livewire U. All right, given your experience working on reality shows and satirizing the uh, industry, you are an expert 
at how ridiculous the genre can get. So we have a, a, a series of actual reality show pitches here, and we are wondering if you, as our sort of visiting expert, are going to be able to figure out which ones actually made it on television and which ones fortunately died a quiet death. You want to give it a shot? Ready. Fertility Island. The idea for this show was to take couples who had trouble conceiving, ship them off to an island that was thought to have fertility powers. Uh, there were also doctors and there were experts there. Fertility Island, did that make it on TV or did it die unseen? I'm going to say no because those people might be old and depressing. You really know your stuff, Shapiro. It did not make it on television. You're absolutely Ooh. right. How about this one? A show called Who's Your Daddy? A woman who was adopted as an infant spends the episode trying to figure out which one of the eight men is actually her biological father. If she guesses correctly, she wins 100 grand. If she picks a fake father, the fake father wins the money. <gasps> did this make it on actual television or did this die unseen? This sounds real. It totally made it on TV. Yeah. You're exactly right. It aired one episode yeah. before coming under a certain amount of well-deserved criticism. Good. So then if you, if you were the fake dad, you could win money if she picked you, if she picked yes. the wrong dad. So yeah, it's trying to convince her, yeah. <gasps> I would so watch that show. There was, a really, <laughs> there was a really low point show called The Will, which was about fighting with your dying father about <laughs> you were getting as well. I'm starting to understand why you're nailing these answers because, like, yeah. if there's an upsetting reality show pitch, you know about it, pretty much. All right, wow. how about this? In Germany, a show called Sperm Race, <laughs> where men watch their donated sperm race. <laughs> Doctors were there to see which sperm actually won, and the winning owner of the sperm got a Porsche. Did this make it on television or die unseen? <laughs> I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that didn't, that didn't happen. Oh, I'm sorry. It absolutely was on television. The sperm raced over a finish line. What were they racing towards? Not an egg. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the producers were very uh, clear to say there was not an egg. They just turned the sperm loose. They just wiggled towards a thing. It's like the, that old Mark Twain story, the jumping frog of Calaveras County. It's the <laughs> jumping sperm of uh, Stuttgart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's where we've ended up as a society. Wow. From Mark Twain to this. So none of this stuff surprises you. Not in the least. Are you saying that uh, people should stop watching reality television if maybe, we know what's good for us? Maybe time. Maybe time. <laughs> what do you do... Uh, as an antidote, like when you're not watching these shows, what are you watching? What are you consuming or what are you reading? Like what's the antithesis of this for you? Um, I, don't, uh, I don't watch any of this stuff. So it's like I, I really do try and stay away from it. I think especially when I was writing the show and um, creating the show, I tried to stay away from all of it so that I was sort of writing in a vacuum. And you feel happier and healthier. A lot. Satirizing the reality yes. industry as opposed to being in it. I do. Well, we're all better for it because Unreal is a great show. Sarah Shapiro, everybody. Unreal is on Lifetime.
This is Livewire Radio from PRI. Our musical guest is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist who's been making music for as long as she can remember. A Portland native, she's been touring with KD Lang and preparing to release her new full-length LP, Shine a Light. Please welcome Morea Massa and the Mood to Livewire. Didn't know how many I had till I had to let them all go. As I pushed them out the front, they were there creeping in the back door. Thought you would be there for us as we grew up and she grew old. Mother, you left us too soon, and there's so much that I don't know. Don't know. Didn't know how many I had. Some dreams are harder than others to lose this time. and the mood right here on Livewire. That's, uh, that's our show this week. 
A big thanks to our guests, Lindy West, Sarah Shapiro, Stephen Green, Alex Falcone, Amorea Massa. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully. Laura Hatton is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. She's visiting from New York this week. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Neil Wright, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix by Jason Powers. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art, the James F. and Mary L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokolov. Our show is made possible by support from our members this week. Thanks to member Carrie Gottkowitz of Portland, Oregon for her support. For more information about our show, how you can catch our podcast, or our newsletter, head to livewireradio.org. For Elena Passarello, I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.